Tyranny The origin of tyranny is an interesting one, and the word tyrant is itself a very important word theologically. Leupold translates Genesis 10, 8-12 as follows. Verses 8 and 9. Cush begat Nimrod. He was the first tyrant upon the earth. He was a mighty hunter in the sight of Yahweh. Wherefore it is said, a mighty hunter in the sight of Yahweh as Nimrod was. Verses 10 through 12. The beginning of his kingdom was Babylon, and Erech and Akkad and Kalna in the land of Shinar. From that region he went forth to Assyria and built Nineveh and Rehoboth Ur, and Kela and Rezin, between Nineveh and Kela. This is that great city. The Hebrew Gabor is translated a mighty one by the King James. The LXX translates it as giant. In Genesis 6-4, the King James translated Nephilim as giants. The Hebrew root for Nephilim is Nephal, of which one meaning is to fall upon or attack. The Nephilim were thus attackers, or as Luther described them, tyrants. Smith denied that the root meanings were here applicable, and saw a mighty one in a favorable sense. Few have agreed with him. The intended purpose of Genesis in both cases is to show the growth of tyranny, first before the flood and second leading to the Tower of Babel. Clearly then, the meaning in both cases implies tyrant. Our English word tyrant is of Greek origin, and it means one ruling without authority, specifically without divine authority. A tyrant is one who rules without law or constitution, and who usurps divine authority. It can therefore be said that a husband tyrannizes his wife and children if he tries to rule them in contempt of God's word and authority. Not surprisingly, in this age of humanism, dictionary definitions of tyrant and tyranny leave out the original religious framework of reference and reduce it to unconstitutional or illegal rule. Tragically, the modern definition of tyranny is humanistic. If man is abused, the ruler is called a tyrant. The word is defined in reference to man. If men like the tyrant, then he is not so called. From a biblical perspective, a ruler is a tyrant, whether or not men like him, if he rules in contempt of God's law. The meaning of scripture here is to depict the growth of tyranny. Man revolts against God and makes himself his own God. As a result, he then seeks to create his own social order, a paradise on earth, wherein he will rule as his own God. Babel is in Aramaic the gate of God. The purpose of the Tower of Babel was thus to establish a world capital and governmental center whereby man could rule as his own God and make his government the gateway to the new paradise. The goal of the new paradise was the godhood of man. God, however, called Babel Babel, in the Hebrew Balbal, meaning Babel, confused, indistinct speech. Babel was intended, according to Elul, as an advance against God. However, in every age, meaninglessness is the destiny of every builder of Babel. The more men separate themselves from God, the more they separate themselves from meaning. This, then, is the first and central meaning of tyranny. By its separation from God, every tyranny becomes also a separation from meaning. Humanism thus can never accomplish its purpose because in the process of seeking its own will, it destroys purpose. The closer man comes to building the Tower of Babel, the closer he draws to his own confusion and scattering. The successes of humanism only draw it closer to its bloody suicide. Thus, Babel will never be finished.
Second, the urge to build Babel is basic, however, to revolutionary man. It is an aspect of his warfare against God. Man no sooner revolts against God than he begins to dream of a universal sovereignty without God. With Nimrod's heirs, the goal was a world government without God and with man as his own God. With modern revolutionary man, the goal is broader. Man seeks not only civil sovereignty but absolute control over life and death, the ability to create and alter life at will, and the power to extend his rule out into space as its new lord and conqueror. Speaking before the House Committee on Science and Astronautics, Dr. James Watson expressed fears concerning the radical experimentations with life itself, which could be expected as a routine thing fairly soon. He said that already there is much population money coming in to stop the rise of population. Moreover, Watson said, Though many people will look with horror at any test tube work with human eggs, others will breathe more easily that something is being done to prevent the world from being crushed by overpopulation. Until a few years ago, this latter group was relatively a small one and without favor in virtually any political circle. Today, however, taboos which would have seemed unbreakable just a decade ago are rapidly being overturned. Witness the recent action of the U.S. in overwhelmingly passing legislation that would promote family planning. Even more significant was the action of New York State, making abortions the right of any woman who desire them. There, furthermore, need not exist the coercion of a totalitarian state when there are already such widespread divergences as to the sacredness of the action of human reproduction. Absolute sovereignty will be sought by man in every realm. Third, man's revolution being essentially anti-God, man's activities will thus be governed by a systematic assault on everything that represents God. Because law is a central manifestation of God's being, a central activity of revolutionary man will be against law. Communism breeds a radical contempt for all law in order to gain power. It can then only retain its power against the lawlessness it has created by terrorism against its people. There can be no satiation of this anti-law drive. It will not be appeased. The more the law is relaxed, the further the boundaries are pushed, and the more the diminished law is broken. Thus, the sexual revolution is not content unless it has new laws to break. After some determined and aggressive pushing, films showing bestiality are now legal fare. Thus, nine theaters in Los Angeles advertised on June 29, 1971, a film on animal love, declaring, Some men and women require greater stimuli to achieve enjoyment in life. We frankly solicit unshockable adults. Seven of these theaters were opened at noon, two at 9.45 a.m., and were open all night. In another city, such bestial acts were being performed on stage. When such viewers do indeed become unshockable, the drive is for a further law boundary to be smashed. There is thus an intensification in the assault against God's law order. Fourth, this revolution, in Elul's words, is much more than taking over God's power. It is the desire to exclude God from his creation. To exclude God from his own creation means that everything must be man-made. Revolutionary man thus systematically destroys in order that all reality may carry only his trademark. Since man himself witnesses to God, being created in the image of God, man must be hunted down and destroyed 
to make way for Superman, Test Tube Man, or Clonal Man. Of Nimrod, Leupold commented, with respect to his being a mighty hunter before the Lord, What the phrase then means in this connection is that the gross violation of men's rights that this mighty hunter of men became guilty of did not elude the watchful eyes of him who in mercy regards the welfare of men, Yahweh, but the fact was openly before him, even if he did not at once proceed to take vengeance upon the despot. So the expression mighty hunter does not refer to exploits in bagging game. In fact, since Gabor in verse 8 means tyrant, meek, correctly, despot, Gabor Tsayid of verse 9 should be rendered as a tyrant or despot of hunt, which plainly indicates that men, and not beasts, were hunted. Revolutionary man is thus destructive, not only towards God's world around him, but towards man himself. In the war against God, revolutionary man treats man as his most expendable commodity and weapon. Fifth, in every age, the end result of man's anti-God revolutions and actions is a confusion, collapse, and scattering. Because there can be no unity, cohesion, or progress apart from God, the attempts by revolutionary man to unite reality and men without God lead instead to a radical fragmentation. As a result, while we must speak of a progression in evil and in anti-God lawlessness, we must also recognize that the end thereof is death. Man, in the state of depravity, is under sentence of death because of his sin. His every development of and progress in that sin only brings him closer to that final sentence, so that, dying, he shall die. Whatever the form of his revolution takes, its end is death. Tyranny thus begins as rule without God and ends as death without God.